Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When confronted with the failure of the Lord's disciples in Mark, it's tempting for hearers of the gospel to weigh and measure betrayal as a matter of degree. Why? Because while we may be willing to admit that we sometimes betray, even the best of us are reluctant to identify with the sin of Judas. As a consequence, we desperately want to believe that the sin of Peter's denial is somehow less scandalous. We excuse Peter because we want to excuse ourselves. But all of us, Isaiah exclaims, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And again, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And yet again, our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 203 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we've gone through this cycle of readings in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, in which we've been overwhelmed, frankly, with anecdotes of betrayal, different types of betrayal. And we're still not off the hook, Richard. Now we're going to finally come into this full, complete betrayal of Peter. We can call it a denial, but the denial is a betrayal. We all know that if you are friends with someone, or even if you have a teacher-student relationship with someone, there's an expectation, once again, of loyalty. I know with certain people in my life that if I'm not present, I can count on them to have my back. I can count on them at least to save face for me and then deliver a criticism if necessary, but not to throw me under the bus in my absence. This scene that's coming up is in the context of all these different betrayals that happen from every walk of Jesus's life. Now, in this next scene, it's going to be someone who not only was always close to Jesus, but also claimed 
superiority to everyone else who is close to Jesus. Context is everything for understanding what it means to have someone's back and what it means to betray somebody. The closeness that these two have. I mean, how often do you have a student who lives and travels with their teacher together for years, side by side, all the time? It doesn't exist. And then to have that person say, I don't know what I think about that person. This is the kind of betrayal that is even worse almost than a marriage. Because these two friends, as teacher and student, not buddies, as friends, teachers and students, where the teacher loved the student and the student served the teacher, and they were so close to have that relationship broken is even more of a betrayal than we can even understand in our society. Well, in our corporatized educational model, where we actually encourage students to give critical feedback to their teachers. How could we teach loyalty? How could we teach obedience? How could we teach respect? I know most listeners will say, oh, Father Mark, you know, what's the big deal? Everybody learns and the teacher gets feedback from the student. Yes, but no. Because the most important lesson for the student is the primacy of the content, is respect for the expertise of the teacher, and is the humility to keep their opinion to themselves. These are important lessons. And you can say no all you want. The fact of the matter is, one of the reasons our culture is in trouble is because no one has respect for expertise anymore. Now, because everything is up to the individual and what they think, it doesn't matter if an expert in a particular field makes an empirical statement. We're supposed to believe now that everyone's opinion counts. And no one cares about the data. I heard a story about a teacher in Liberia in a village. And he was the only one in the village to have books. And if you're one of his favorite students, he would allow you to come over to his house so you could read his books. This was an honor to be able to come and read his books. Exactly. If you're one of the worst students, he would come to your house and watch you do your homework. And he would talk to your parents about how important it was to do your homework. There was no student that slipped through his grasp. But these are the kind of relationships that are a million miles away from the top 10 schools in the United States, where the teacher is a member of the family, and not just a member of the family, the most respected member of the family, even if there's no blood relation. This kind of teacher-student relationship does not have any context for us. So this is why I beg our listeners to incorporate themselves into the story of the Bible. Do not try to bring the Bible into your life because you can't understand it, but change your life in such a way so that this actually will make sense to you. Hear Peter's denial of Jesus as your denial of the people whom God has entrusted to you in your life. Hear Peter's shame as your shame. This is the only hope for our communities. If you love your community, if you love your country, love your country by submitting to the shame of the gospel. Because what we need are more people who are shamed by the Bible's critique. We have plenty of people in the United States today on television and in the media attacking other people. What we need are people who accept the scriptural attack against their ego, which will produce its life 
through its seed for the sake of the common good. Let scripture be your Liberian teacher. When you are honored, it will allow you to read its books. And when you are struggling, it will force you to sit down and do your homework. And it will control your tongue. And it will say what it needs to say for the sake of the common good. Think of scripture in a way as an artificial DNA that replaces your DNA. Let scripture reformat your programming so that when you open your mouth, instead of saying what your biology wants you to say, you say what scripture teaches you to say, and then there will be hope. But when I see everyone lobbing bombs across the aisle at each other, left and right, what I see is self-righteousness in full bloom. And when you see that, O oh human being, it makes me afraid for our country. I really want to make a heartfelt plea with our listeners. We are studying the gospel, preaching the gospel, and sharing the gospel for the sake of the common good. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. It's striking, Richard, that we just heard this very sarcastic critique of Peter a few verses ago, that he was warming himself, and then with a kind of poetic rhythm, we hear it again. Peter is warming himself. He's taking care of himself, and the question is, what's the relationship then between Peter and Jesus? Weren't you with him? This is the one, Jesus, who convinced Peter to give up his livelihood, to drop his net, as we saw in the beginning of the book, to follow him. So now the question is, oh, weren't you with him? Very simple question. We all know the answer. And that's part of the shame is that we all do know the answer. And the servant girl didn't know. And the fact that he's warming himself and he's among the servants. I mean, the whole point was that Peter was being taught to be a sower. If there's any opportunity for sowing the seed, this is the keros. This is the time. This is the opportunity that has confronted Peter. Now it's the time to sow the seed and to speak the gospel. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And here, his denial in verse 68 is a denial not only of his friend Jesus and his teacher, but of what Jesus taught, the seed. That's what's so ominous about this section. It's a total denial not just of Jesus, but of everything Jesus cares about, of everything Jesus stands for, of everything that Jesus is working for. It's a total betrayal. And this is just the first of three strikes. Our professor always places the most importance on the teaching first and foremost. And so he will not preserve someone's feelings if they're not living up to the teaching. The worst betrayal for him is when you betray the teaching. If you betray the teaching, he has no problem being friendly towards you, but he's not going to spend time because it's about the teaching. So I want to read Peter in this light. Peter is not simply denying Jesus. We always think of like, oh, how could he abandon his friend? Yes, this relationship is a very close relationship and the betrayal is hot. But even worse, 
Jesus was willing to give up himself for the sake of this teaching. Peter will neither give himself up for his teacher nor for the teaching. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. This is the second strike against Peter. And I want to remind everybody that the number three is of the utmost significance in Scripture. We have a second strike. If there's a third strike, it means that there's something final and total about what's going on. This is something that happens again and again throughout the Bible. Books are structured this way, where there's a one and a two, and then the three never comes because the end times haven't come yet. But when three is complete, it's a kind of foretaste of the end times. Because when your mom says one, and then she stretches the two, there's still a chance for you to do what you're supposed to do. But when she gets to three, if you haven't picked up your clothes off the floor, it's judgment day. And Peter is going to get to three in this section. This has to be understood as a condemnatory mechanism in this context. And these are all witnesses against him. It's witness after witness. And this is what's interesting. Again, remember the context. None of the witnesses could agree at Jesus's trial. But every one of the witnesses in Peter's, quote, trial, unquote, agreed with each other. There was a single story. He is one of them. And he was the one who was inconsistent with their story. And three has another value in scripture. If you have two people, you can't have a decisive judgment. But if you have three people, you will always have a majority vote. Peter now is in the court of God's judgment. And to the extent that there are three people bringing a witness against Peter, there will be no question as to the outcome of the judgment at the end of chapter 14. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Now in other Gospels, it pushes this further, and it makes fun of Peter. They don't just call out that he's a Galilean too. In the Gospel of Matthew, they comment on his accent, which is to ridicule Peter's embarrassment of his affiliation with Galilee and his affiliation with the unclean and his affiliation with Jesus. You know how immigrants are embarrassed sometimes of their accent and they try to overcompensate by trying to prove to everybody that they're more American than the Americans, more kingly than the king, as it were. Rare is the immigrant like my father, who was born in Egypt, came to the United States, and was never ashamed of being Egyptian and had no trouble being an American. He didn't need to prove his Americanism at the expense of the fact that he came from Egypt. But Peter right now, is desperately trying to fit in with the in-crowd. So the mention of Galilee is embarrassing for him. And now he gets hot under the collar. And the vanity comes to fruition. This is the thing that's so wicked about this scene. Jesus has literally put his life on the line for this teaching. And Peter acts as if he never heard the teaching. When we have the scene of the sower going out to sow, 
and the different kinds of ground that the seed lands on. When the seed lands on the rock, it sprouts up excited, but then shrivels up in the sun. Here we have Peter, the rock. When the seed lands on him, he gets very excited. But then while he's warming himself at the fire, it shrivels up as if it was never there because he denies that there even was a seed. As you said, he's denying it. But it's more than denial. He's cursing and swearing. He's going crazy. He's going to the extreme. He is becoming bombastic to really distance himself from the people that he should be accountable to. Now, we've said the teaching is more important than the relationship with Jesus. Yes, but in the narrative, they're linked. That's the point. But what's important about your comment throughout this podcast for our listeners is don't imagine that because the loyalty to the teaching is expressed in the teacher-student relationship, that the real scandal pertains to the relationship. The relationship is a narrative function meant to help you understand viscerally how ugly it is to deny the seed of the gospel. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Now, everybody makes a big deal out of Peter weeping. Everybody goes to great lengths to say, you see, Father Mark, Peter felt sorry. But let me stop you right there. Peter felt. As my father used to say, Peter's feelings and 50 cents will not pay for my coffee. What good are Peter's feelings? Why now suddenly we're a sensitive snowflake? Peter cried. Did that stop Jesus from going to the cross? Did Peter's tears produce a seed that gave life to the gospel? He felt sorry. What good are his feelings? Don't be fooled. It's a trick by the writer. Peter's tears do not mean that he's better than Judas. When people say this, they miss the point. Because Peter is Judas. Peter is a Judean who's ashamed of his affiliation with Galilee because he wants to be the uber-Judean. He's pro-Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that Jesus never entered in the Gospel of Mark except to bring judgment toward the end of the movement of the narrative. This is the Judah that he avoided in the wilderness in the opening scene of Mark. So he felt bad. There are plenty of men who abuse their wife and they weep after every single time. So what? So he feels sad. This is useless. At least when he's under judgment, he recalled the word. Now in Greek, it's rima, not logos, but he remembered the word that Jesus spoke to him. So even though the seed fell on hard ground, maybe there's a chance that there's one seed that fell on fertile ground that can grow into something and produce fruit. We don't know yet. Maybe we'll see an axe. Maybe he'll get his act together. We'll see. Then there's Galatians. There's a problem. There's always a problem with Peter. He's always excited. He's got a lot of emotion when he feels good about the word. He's got a lot of emotion when he feels bad about the word. The only thing that matters is the fruit. 
what comes of it. What I would say about your comment about later in Acts, while it's absolutely chronologically correct in terms of the narrative, the reality is that Mark is reflecting the story in Acts. This was the point that I made last week. And I think that's why. It's because of Peter's behavior toward the unclean and because of his dispute with Paul that he's presented in the Gospel of Mark in the way that he's presented. And when I say to our listeners that there's a link between Peter and Judas, what I mean is that Judas in his name represents those closest to Jesus, his relatives. And Peter is the chief among that community. He's truly, in this sense, linked to Judas in the narrative, metaphorically, symbolically. Now, you can't, though, hear this as, now we need to write off Peter. Because who are you to write off Peter? You remembered the word. That's why in Acts, Peter's not totally a lost cause. And you can't say that Judah is a lost cause. You can't say that. This is the point that Paul makes in Romans. If you're struggling with this, it's because you're still trying to prove that there is one righteous man left on the earth. But if that's the case you're trying to make, you're going against the grain of Scripture. Just accept that Peter, who was the chief of the apostles, really screwed up. And it's condemnable. Now, if you accept that, you now have to reflect on the implications for you. Now, you'll never be able to sin as big as Peter because you're never going to be as important as Peter. <laughs> because scripture was written and you're not on the page. So relax. But you should hear the story of Peter and feel some shame and reflect on the ways in which you've betrayed others. Reflect on the ways in which you've betrayed the gospel that was entrusted to you in your baptism. What have you done about that? A brother, a priest of mine, once said at someone's baptism that we seal you with the chrism the way that you seal a letter going out into the world. You are sealed with the letter of the gospel. Did you carry the letter forward? Did you sow the seed? Or did you deal with church like McDonald's and went there for some emotional sustenance whenever you felt down? Were you like the mob in Mark? Or were you like the garrison demoniac who was healed and stayed behind to sow the seed didn't cling to Jesus to fulfill his emotional needs. If you're like the crowd in Mark, you're going to fall for Peter's weeping and there'll be no hope for you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.